guys. Welcome back into a brand new episode of Dimming the Gaslight. My name is Mac, and thanks for coming in for the newest episode. So um, I'm a little pressed for time as I record this intro because, um, well, I want to wish a happy Easter to everybody who celebrates Easter because I do too. And uh, so I have to go pick up my kids in a little while. Yesterday was my son's seven-year-old birthday, so uh, I got to spend just an hour and a half with them. And uh, I got him slushies and stuff when we went to the playground. It was a really quick visit, but it was really sweet and it was really nice. And I got to give him his presents for his birthday. And then today I bought uh, water park tickets to go to an indoor water park uh, nearby where I live. And then after that, tomorrow is Easter and I get to have them overnight tonight, tomorrow into Easter to 6 p.m. Uh, so I have a lot of planning and prepping to do, but I forgot that I didn't record an intro to this podcast. So, uh, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, fill you guys in. I also wanted to say thank you, uh, to Tiara for last week's episode. It's so cool how I get to connect with some of these people. Um, you know, I, I've been following Tiara since the day I discovered narcissism and, you know, it's super amazing now that I get to hear her story and have her on a podcast and connect with her. So Tiara, if you're listening, thank you. I'm super grateful that I got to meet you. And then also this week, I have sort of a similar situation, like somebody that I have followed since the day I discovered narcissism, and now I get to connect with her. And um, it's super interesting because on this podcast, I've done the angle in the past of having like parental narcissistic, narcissistic abuse, um, but I've never really done like the coaching or the self-help episode about that. So that's what I'm doing today. Um, and I tell this this person that I'm bringing on to the podcast that she's had a major influence on my life and she doesn't even know it because this was the first time we ever spoke. Uh, it was really, really cool. Um, the last thing I want to tell you guys is next week, uh, less than a week away, is my next day for my trial. Um, so that's what the next episode is going to be about. And if you remember, my next sat on the stand and perjured the hell out of herself and I have all the evidence to beat it. And I know I feel like I've been hyping this up for so long. Um, but yeah, it's I next Friday, um, when you hear this, the, the upcoming Friday is perjury day. And I'm hyped. Um, I'm excited. I got to knock out this weekend because I got a lot of great stuff planned. But uh, Brittany Parisi from Parisi Law Firm out of New Jersey and I, we are prepping very hard. And I am super excited. Uh, we're going to scare the shit out of my next next week. And uh I hope she's held responsible. So anyway, um, let's get into this week's episode. I hope you guys like it and uh, check it out. All right, everybody, welcome back into a brand new episode of Dimming the Gaslight. So I am here with Adriana from Let's Get Your Shift Together. Adriana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm super excited to be here and chat with you. Oh, it's so funny. You don't know this, but you have been, su we've never met before. This is the first time we're talking, but you have been super instrumental in my journey. And, oh, you know, ever since we planned this call, I've been dying to tell you this story. Okay. Oh, so, um, my name is Mac and I've only told this story one other time on the podcast, but no, that's not actually my real name. Okay. And the way I came up with Mac is I was following social media accounts on Instagram trying, when I learned about narcissism, trying to learn about narcissistic abuse. And you were the very first person I followed. Okay. Oh, I was following you and I was watching your content and I was like, oh my God, I think I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. Okay. But I was in my kitchen. I have two young kids. I have a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. And I was in the kitchen. I don't know where my next was at the time. 
um, but I'm researching, you know, gaslighting and narcissism and stuff, and I'm following all your content and I'm liking everything. But then I realized my next can see the pages I'm following and the hashtags and everything. And because I was following you, I started scared the shit out of me. I'm like, I know. And I got to delete everybody. So I deleted you and I created an account. And the name of the account was called the Macaroni King 1447. And the reason for that is because I was in the kitchen making my kids macaroni and cheese. And I wanted to follow you, but I couldn't do it with my real name. Oh my God. When I started creating this podcast, um, the Macaroni King was a stupid name for a podcast. But it's hilarious. I changed it to dimming the gaslight, but I had a listener who was listening to me and they said, yeah, I'll listen to your podcast, but can I still call you Mac? So you are the reason why my name is Mac. Oh my God. That's so cool. That's a good thing. Yeah, so you don't even know it, but you, it directly changed my life because this is my stage name kind of because of you. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. Thanks so much for sharing that with me. That's amazing. I wanted to get your genuine reaction because I was like, I could tell you the story off the air, but isn't that weird? You have outreach that you have on people and it's really incredible. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That's amazing. So I wanted to bring her on the show together because I've been following her since the day I discovered narcissism. And the cool thing about her account is she's super genuine. It's super funny. It's super uh, educational. But the cool thing about it is a lot of the relationships and a lot of the guests that I bring on this podcast are from the romantic angle and it's from relationships and things like that. But you have experience with narcissistic family members mm -hmm. and done the narcissistically family episode, but I've never really done the, the coaching aspect of it. So that's why I'm glad that you're here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this influencer role? Zoom for sure. It's actually a really random story. It was actually chronic pain that got me into this, which, yeah, doesn't seem like it makes any sense. But long story short, I had really horrible chronic pain for about four years after a wisdom tooth extraction. I ended up with migraines, trigeminal neuralgia, um, carpal tunnel, bad neck. Um, I eventually got shingles in my mouth while I was getting my jaw like realigned, like this crazy procedure. Yeah. And, um, this was all by the ripe old age of 30. And so obviously way too young to have shingles for the second time in my life. And, uh, you know, all these other issues with my body. And I was just really falling apart. After I got shingles, I got something called trigeminal neuralgia, which is like the nerve on the side of the face that's responsible for feeling. And when it's inflamed, because that was the nerve that the shingles got, it's called trigeminal neuralgia. And they nickname it the suicide disease because that is how painful it is. Yeah. Yeah, it was awful. So I literally told my husband that, you know, I'm going to try to give you another 10 years before you're going to have to call yourself a widower because if life is this painful right now at age 30, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, you know, aging is not going to go well for me at this rate. And so I ended up finding, I it was so random because this was back in 2019 when, you know, like the algorithm was just starting to get kind of creepy and, you know, People weren't really doing that many impulse buys online. So I found an ad for this app called Curable and it was marketed for people with chronic pain. So I'm like, okay, how does it know I have chronic pain? That's weird, but purchase one year subscription. And then I looked at the app and I immediately got so angry about it because it basically said that all of my um, chronic pain was a result of repressed emotions from childhood trauma. 
So I'm thinking I don't have childhood trauma. I knew my mother was a narcissist and I had like, you know, not the best upbringing, but I didn't see it as actual trauma. Like, you know, when you hear the word trauma, you think of like, you know, catastrophic, horrible, you know, horrible abuse, like physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, growing up in a war zone. Like that's what I thought trauma was. But there's also, you know, the lowercase t trauma, which gives your nervous system the exact same response as you know, the trauma that we all know and can accept as trauma. And so basically it was all about, you know, calming down my nervous system, doing the inner work. It was no fun, but I did it. I re-traumatized myself a little bit in the process. And then once, you know, four and a half months into it, I was 100% out of my chronic pain, which was absolutely wild. Because, you know, at first I read what it was all about, repressed emotions, childhood trauma, and I was like, no, this is stupid. And of course, the next day I was still in pain because, you know, chronic pain is chronic pain. And I just decided humor me up. Let's let's see. Let's see what kind of what this trauma is all about. And obviously it worked. So that's when I decided to become a life coach four months after that, because I was like, people need to know about the mind body connection. This is going to save lives. This is going to help like, you know, the 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 opioid crisis and like the painkiller epidemic and all that. And then I started opening up a little bit more and more on social media with about like my upbringing, being raised by a narcissistic mother and, you know, how that connected to like my chronic pain and the narcissistic mother thing started really resonating with people. So I sort of switched over like my niche, so, so to speak. Um, And it's been working out really well because most people who have been narcissistically abused, especially by a parent, they've got some kind of chronic pain or like a mind body connection type syndrome that you keep going to the doctor they don't know what's wrong with you you just have to sort of manage it but you dying has been ruled out this inner work actually helps with all that kind of stuff plus actually healing and being able to move forward with your life i you know it's funny that you say that so when i was in my narcissistically abusive relationship i had tmj from grinding and my i i would go and he would like uh i had to get a retainer and i had to get all this shit because i was grinding my teeth and then now that I'm out of it and I'm going through the court system and stuff, I have horrible eczema. I don't mm-hmm. know what's from, but it's on my shins. And sometimes I, I look like a crackhead. I'm scratching until I bleed, for Christ's sake. I, and I'm, I'm going to the dermatologist because my eczema. And I never had eczema, but it's only when I got out of my relationship. And it's like kind of purging all these demons. Like I, I started feeling like that. But yeah. uh, it, you might need to do some inner work for that eczema. <laughs> It right. actually helps with it. I think I know a person who might be able to help yeah, it. Me too. <laughs> so tell us a little bit. So um, you said that you had a narcissistically abusive uh, mother. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and how you came to find that she was a narcissist? Yeah, um, I actually didn't realize she was a narcissist until I was breaking up with a narcissist for like the, I, I'm embarrassed to say how many times it had been. Um, <laughs> I dated one too many of those. And pretty much like I had dated narcissists before this particular ex, but this one was the most confusing relationship I had ever been in. And it was one of the shortest. It was only a couple of months. And this guy was like talking about marrying me and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he just wasn't attracted to me anymore. So I was just like, what the hell? <laughs> like, to, like, what, what is it? What is this all about? So I was Googling, like, how can a guy like be so persistent, like, you know, almost like convince you to date him and then all of a sudden they're not attracted to you anymore and then eventually i stumbled upon narcissism 
I read the checklist and I was like, oh, okay, this applies to not only this relationship that I'm just ending now, it also applies to my last one, my last one, and my last one before that, and the last one before that. And then eventually down that Google rabbit hole, it was like a page of like signs that you have a narcissistic mother. And that was just, you know, that I was like, holy shit, my mother's a narcissist. And yeah, I went back into denial for about a year and a half <laughs> because of course. Explain that. I don't get it. You didn't yeah. want I did not want to accept that my mother was a narcissist. Like it was, it was easy for me to accept that my ex was a narcissist and I ended up breaking that cycle. I found my now husband, you know, about a year after or so. And, um, he is not a narcissist, thank goodness. So definitely broke that cycle, but I did not want to believe my mother was a narc. And so what actually got me to, I mean, I believed it on a deeper level, but like, you know, I just, I wanted to like stick my head back up my ass, obviously. Like you were, you and I were talking about this before we got on the air. You have one mother, you have one father, you only have one set of parents for your entire life. You're like, I don't want to believe that my mother's like, you know, has a personality disorder or that she doesn't love me or that she's using me. It's so hard to comprehend. Oh, Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly pretty much why I went into denial for that year and a half. And basically growing up with her, it was it was a disaster, of course, like, you know, every night screaming about this or that. Um, I also lived with my grandparents that, you know, she was like a caregiver to my grandmother, um, but it was really just done to manipulate my uncle and it, it the inheritance. You know, you know how they are. Um, yeah. So that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, pretty much. Oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. Denial for a year and a half. Yes, denial for a year. Oh yeah. So yeah, basically growing up with her, I was isolated from the majority of my family. So my parents got divorced when I was very young. And I always believed my father was this horrible person who, yeah, didn't want me, didn't pay for child support, wanted to leave us homeless and on the streets. Yeah, so I eventually learned that that was not true. Um, I ended up, so like I was very much alienated from my father. Like I wanted nothing to do with him. My mom told me all these awful things about him. So I grew up hating and fearing him. And it wasn't until 2014 when I was getting out of that narcissistic relationship when I decided I think I need to forgive my father <laughs> for abandoning me. It still didn't click in just yet, but I was like, I think I want to talk to my dad. And I was like in my mid-20s at the time. So, you know, my, my poor father, like going almost three decades without hearing from me or anything, like me not wanting to talk to him. And so we actually ended up having a conversation very early in 2015. And he basically told me his side of things. And I didn't believe him at first. But then one day my mother was out grocery shopping and I was still living there at the time because financial abuse and all that. And I kind of went through all her documents and I actually found what my dad was talking about. He actually did, in fact, pay for child support, but my mom ended up like stealing the money from me, basically. And there was even a signature on it on my 18th birthday signing away what was left from like this fund that he left me. And I basically signed it off to her because I'm 18. I have no idea what this is. And if your mom tells you to sign something, you just do it. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how my childhood and upbringing kind of went. You know, it's funny. So, I mean, this is kind of just an impromptu thought. But so there's certain people or certain pages on social media who claim that parental alienation doesn't exist. I've seen and, that. 
I don't understand that, to be honest with you, because I know what's going on with me. Um, but I've, I've always wanted to do an episode with somebody who had, is now a grown adult who was alienated from their, their father or, or mother or whatever it was, you know, alienated from a loving parent. Um, when you and your father reconnected, you know, did you have this predisposition to believe that he didn't want you or he didn't love you? Or, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I thought like he, I literally believed he abandoned me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it turned out that he didn't like so when I found the documents, they actually both had custody of me. But I thought only my mother had custody of me because he was such a bad guy. And if he anytime that he wanted to see he could have seen me anytime he wanted to. And he did try. I do remember him trying like genuinely trying. But I was so brainwashed by my mother that he was just this evil, horrible person that I would always say, no, I don't want to see my father. Like, I hate him. I don't want to see him. Yeah, and he could have he could have still seen me, but he would have had to bring the police. But he figured, you know, she's already so traumatized with like everything going on. And he didn't want to be he didn't want to traumatize me even more because, you know, I already think he's such a bad man. And if he comes with police, like what I'm going to think he's even worse. And then my mom could spin that even worse. Exactly, exactly. Because that's the kind of thing that that's going on with me now is that and, and, you know, you hear all the time, like, you know, kids will figure it out. The older they get, they'll figure it out. But that smear campaign that's coming from the guilty parents, you know, you don't want to believe that your mother or your father is trying to poison your mind. So like you said, if your mother says, here, sign this on your 18th birthday, you're just going to sign it because you want to believe that they have your best interest in mind. But yeah, wow, you're you're making me feel like uh, you're, you're almost like my kids in the future. Like, yeah, their realization, you know, uh, you know, um, so how old were you when you figured out that your mother was a narcissist? I was like 26 um, when I like first stumbled upon the information and then in denial until about 27 and a half, 28 ish. But then what were some of the um, kind of boundaries that you imposed when you had discovered that she was a narcissist? Oh, man. Well, at first I had no idea that like boundaries were even a thing. So I didn't really have any. I just got frustrated with her all the time. And sorry. For therapy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was in therapy, but the therapists weren't really helpful. Like, you know, the the advice that I got from like one of the first therapists I spoke to was, oh, think about her childhood and, you know, what she's been through. And, you know, she's really stressed out. And it was just like, OK, wow, I thought therapy was for me. But OK, <laughs> have to keep therapizing my mother. Hit that other side of the coin shit. And I told my therapist, my therapist, I said, listen, I know what I've been through. I know what I experienced. I've experienced a lot of gaslighting and I don't want to come in here for you to play devil's advocate or give me the other side of the coin. I need to be validated. Because I don't even know what's real anymore. All I know is that I experienced abuse and I don't want to hear like, oh, well, maybe it was like this. Maybe it was like this. No, I know how it was. I know what I lived through and I need some sort of validation. So unfortunately, that's a tale as old as time. A lot of people say that, you know, therapy isn't necessarily what works. But I was hoping when I asked if you were in therapy, I was hoping that maybe that would have helped you institute some boundaries. Oh, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, isn't that sad that you have to like almost vet the therapist and actually like tell them, look, I need validation from you and I need you to not play devil's advocate. Like, I just find it so ridiculous that that even needs to be a disclaimer from the client. Like, it's just wild. Because everybody these days, it's like, there's two sides of the coin, right? Like 
2022, the Webster's Dictionary says gaslighting is the word of the year, right? But then you got the other side where like people are like, oh, every time it's a breakup, the ex is a narcissist and it's always a narcissist. And like, it's weird. It's like, are we progressing or are we just kind of like over the whole narcissism thing? And I feel like that's what happens in therapy is like, they feel like, you know, you don't have any medical degree or anything like that. So you can't be running around diagnosing as a nurse. And I think that's what these medical professionals think is that we're all just a bunch of complainers running around diagnosing people as narcissists. But there's many of us, and, and I didn't know this until I knew it, but so many of us have experienced the same thing. Totally. You don't need a master's degree to be able to see a list of traits and realize that it matches the person who's been like basically sabotaging your entire life the entire time you've known them. <laughs> I've seen your content like where you're sitting there and like you're just like kind of minding your own business or whatever. And you're drinking water and you're like, oh, I just remembered something they did to me like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it's an onion that you keep like unpeeling and you, you sit there and you go like, shit like it all if it walks like a duck if it quacks like a duck if it sounds up you know what i mean exactly so go back to so what were some of these um boundaries that you instituted when you had learned that you had to kind of because it's different than a romantic relationship when it's family it's not so easy as just go no contact a hundred percent so my first i guess real boundary would have been me moving out but i still didn't know the whole concept of what boundaries were she made that hell obviously and then eventually when i actually cured my chronic pain that was when i found out about boundaries so i was already sort of using the gray rock technique on her at like during that time because i at least knew about it it didn't occur to me that that in itself is a boundary gray rocking it's really like a tool to protect yourself and not supply the narcissist with your emotional reaction and obviously you're not going to announce that boundary to the narcissist because that's you know, that'll turn into a whole thing. You just start gray rocking. So I definitely did that with my mother. And then eventually, like towards, she ended up passing away in 2020, but towards like the end, like the last year or so of her life, um, I basically just had a protocol that I was pretty much no contact with her. Um, but you can consider it very low contact because I couldn't be full no contact because I think, yeah, I mentioned it a bit earlier that my uncle had been like suing her for 10 years for his share of the house when my grandmother died. And um, my name was on documents. And so I couldn't completely cut off contact altogether because like I knew there was going to be like some bullshit that I would have had to take care of or end up in legal trouble. So that's kind of what kept me in contact. I'm also an only, I'm her only child. I have two half brothers from my father's first marriage, but I'm her only child. I'm basically the only family member that is even, you know, in contact with her because she's pissed everybody off at this point. And so my boundary was basically not answering any of her calls. And if she needed anything, she could leave me a voicemail. And after, you know, Later in the day, whenever I'm ready for, when I was ready for it, after, you know, maybe smoking something with THC in it, then I would listen to the voicemail <laughs> and um, decide if it was warranted to call her back or not and just continue ignoring her altogether. So that was pretty much my protocol. I love that. I love that. That's great advice for anybody listening. How do you deal, and this is something that I, I deal with, but how do you deal with, and, you know, holidays are coming up, Easter is this weekend, right? Yeah. 
how do you deal with that guilt trip of not wanting to be involved with you only have one family, but I don't want to go on Easter. I don't want to go on Christmas. I don't want to see them on their birthday. How do you deal with that internal guilt trip? Yeah. So what you have to understand is the guilt, first of all, was actually conditioned into you. When you're in an in any relationship with a narcissist, especially when you are born to one, narcissistic parents, they know how to install that guilt into you from a very young age. So they know when to push it. They know exactly what to say in order to make you feel guilty. And of course, what comes with guilt is a sense of obligation. And so anyone who's in either of those states of guilt or a sense of obligation is easier to control. And it's so much easier to just, you know, suck it up for the day and go to Easter dinner on the weekend. And, you know, then you spend like weeks recovering emotionally from it because it was such an absolute shit show. Um, and then, of course, your narcissistic parent ends up getting supply because you actually showed up. You took time out of your day to see her and all that kind of shit. They think that look at the control I have over yeah. you. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. And so the best thing to do if you're feeling guilty about not wanting to see them for the holidays is to process your guilt. Now, obviously, that is easier said than done. Um, journaling is a really great way to do it. So, you know, just kind of rage on a page for 20 minutes about how you feel guilty and you think you're a horrible person and blah, blah, blah. Eventually, your logical side of your brain will come through and it will tell you, like, it's going to be a nightmare. The people who should be feeling guilty are actually your family members and you don't have to actually subject yourself to this drama and nonsense and bullshit. But of course, that is much easier said than done. And so that's why I tell survivors all the time, like, just start doing the inner work somewhere, wherever you're at right now. Start journaling 20 minutes, rip it up when you're done so you don't have to worry about the narcissist finding it. And also that kind of tells your subconscious this shit no longer serves me. And if you do that every day, like that can be profound because the reason that you're so confused all the time is because of those repressed emotions. And so when you've got guilt running the show and you don't know what to do with that guilt because no one teaches us what to do with our emotions, then you're going to make a decision based on the guilt and you're acting on the guilt. And that's what the narcissist wants you to do. Whereas if you feel your guilt, allow your body to process it. It's actually a physical process feeling your emotions. And you're going to feel it somewhere. It's going to be very uncomfortable, but it will diminish. But that's only if you start really accepting it. And that is really how to release that guilt. And it will go away so much faster than you think. It's just really about biting the bullet, letting yourself feel it because it's so uncomfortable. And I bet people listening to this right now are thinking like, because you just said, you know, it's really they should be feeling guilty for you not showing up to the get together. But I bet anybody listening to this right now is going to go, but they're not. Oh, they're not. No. Like, oh, you know, Max an asshole. He didn't show up this time. And and really, you know, I've, I heard somewhere along the line, you know, other people's opinion is none of your bit. Other people's opinion of you is none of your business, you know. And really, I, I try and like keep in my little box here of this is my life and I have to take care of myself because for 10 years I didn't. And like you, I experienced chronic pain and I experienced chronic depression and fatigue and all those kind of things. Um. And I love what you just said, but here's another side and, and allow me, I guess you can call it devil's advocate, right? So when I got out of my relationship, the whole world was changed, right? And I didn't have the ability to be with my children or my ex-wife on Christmas, for example. And I found myself alone, mm -hmm. and alone in an apartment, you know, 
trying to just make the best of this loneliness. So do you have any advice for that for people who they say, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to go to the abusive relationship, but now I'm stuck here and I'm all alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's the thing. Being alone is not the worst thing in the world. So just try to think about it this way. Would you rather be alone or would you rather be surrounded by people who are trying to ruin your life? Right. And, you know, we're social creatures. Obviously, we need human connection and all that kind of stuff. But the most important relationship you are ever going to have is your relationship with yourself. And so doing that inner work and starting to like really process those emotions, because, you know, the feeling of loneliness is tied to emotions as well. Right. There can be some fear in there, some shame. Right. Any of those big emotions. Embarrassment. Embarrassment exactly. A loser for being alone. Nobody loves you know? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So that's shame right there. So a really great thing to do when you're finding yourself feeling embarrassed about being alone is just journal that out. See where that takes you. See if you can allow yourself to feel what that guilt or that shame rather feels like in your body. And then you might start noticing you actually don't mind spending time by yourself. And it's actually quite peaceful once, you know, you all that mental chatters kind of diminished. And that's what journaling's for. You know, you know, it's funny. So um, I found myself alone this past Thanksgiving and I was all alone and I went out and I bought a turkey and I bought stuffing and I bought mashed potatoes and all the stuff that I like because I used to have to cook Thanksgiving dinner all the time. And I turned on the football game and I was like, OK, I'm cooking. I sit down. I'm like, you know, I, I sat down and I realized, just like you said, I would rather be alone than with my douchebag in-laws. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in-laws fighting with me over like how I made the food or like, my parents or like whatever it is like we said you know me and my sister used to be like oh my god it's not Christmas till somebody cries because it's always like, so true it's awful it's not Christmas till somebody cries that used to be our motto because like somebody would always get offended and upset about something so like, true oh it's cool and I and it's funny like so at the time I posted this picture on Instagram and I just took a picture of my plate like you know all social media people do but I was like this means a lot to me this pulls I earned this peace and quiet and tranquility and I don't have to argue with anybody and I'm certainly not missing that and I can go to bed put my head on the pillow tonight and be like no I avoided any drama and God knows those people are over there fighting with each other exactly isn't it such a freeing feeling? It is. It's it is lonely, but there there's it's perspective, right? It's exactly. Oh, what you look at, it's about what you see. You know what I mean? Exactly. So you mentioned that your mother passed away. How was that for you when she passed away? And so I had somebody on this podcast who was talking about, you know, an, a narcissistically abusive mother and her mother passed away and she was super conflicted when she did. She didn't know if she should be happy or if she should be relieved or what was that experience like for you? Yeah. Oh my God. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was such a disaster. So when my mother passed away, I was at least one year into my healing journey. And the way I like to talk about the healing journey, it's not like a one and done thing. It's a lifestyle change. So, you know, at this point, I'm four and a half years into my healing journey. Like there's no end game to it. So that's just, you know, just a quick thing to, to say um, for anyone who's feeling defeated by the healing journey. It's it's a lifestyle change and things will improve. Linear, you know, it, it goes up and it goes down. But I always say as trajectory is going up. Exactly. Exactly. Even if it feels like it's going down, you're still going up. So, yeah, when my mother. So it was it was a long it was a two month process for her to actually die. 
Um, so basically, like when I first I got a phone call from like a hospital in a different city because she drove on like a random highway that was like the toll highway. And she was like one of the cheapest people I've ever known in my life. So for her to be on the the paid highway, it was like, OK, wow, something something's not right here. Um, and the police found her. They brought her to this hospital like two cities away from where I live and they wanted her medical information. And I'm like, well, we're sort of estranged. Um, so, you know, I the emergency contact. Yeah. So she actually um, I I acquired her purse when she was in the hospice like a month later. And um, oh, no, actually, no, she actually told the police my name. And so they went through her phone and then they called me. And then I guess they because she didn't have a password on it or anything like she didn't really know how to use her phone. So I, I had set it up for her um, years ago. And uh, yeah, I guess the police gave the hospital my my name and she had my phone number written down in her wallet as well. And it was in her phone. So, yeah, like I was the only I was really the only emergency contact either way. And uh, yeah, so they they told me they had her and she was found on the highway, disoriented in her car. And then, yeah, I had to get her car from like the, the pa- it was such a disaster. And I had to break into the house to get like her documents and everything because they didn't give me her keys. It was during COVID. The keys were in the purse, but they didn't look in like the right compartment to get them. It was a nightmare. And so that kind of, that whole shit show experience of all the crap that I had to deal with, um, plus the whole lawsuit situation where I had to clean up her mess that she never finished that was lasting for 10 years so that all that pissed me off and as they say anger is a really great motivator so you know it just really motivated me to get this done and over with as soon as possible and you know be able to wash my hands of it in the fastest way I possibly could and like never have to revisit this again and um as her condition was declining it turned out she had a heart attack I guess while she was driving and yeah And it was a massive heart attack. It wasn't like just at first they told me it was mild, but then I guess they did more tests. It turned out to be a massive heart attack. So I'm like thinking to myself, why isn't she dead? (laughs) Like that was my first thought. Like, why is she alive? (laughs) Right. But sort of, thank goodness. Can I say something awful? Yeah, please. (laughs) Ockroach narcissists don't die. I know. (laughs) It's so true. She took fucking forever to die. Right now, but we have our hands on our face and we're covering our mouths like, oh God, that felt so awful. Yeah, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I was literally like, why isn't she dead? Sorry. Oh, poor lady having a heart attack and she's still driving? Yeah, kind of- well, she was she was stopped. I, I'm pretty sure her car also ran out of gas because yeah, like that's the condition we found everything in was just, yeah. Um, And she... It turned out she had advanced Alzheimer's, so I didn't really know that. Like, there were a few signs here and there. You were estranged. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, I hadn't seen her for a full year, and there was, like, a little sign of Alzheimer's the last time I had seen her in person. And I figured, okay, you know what? If this gets worse, I'll I'll monitor the situation, and then worse comes to worse, I'll call senior services on her. And, you know, she'll be the government's problem, and that's it. So it did not play out the way I expected. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, um, it was it was quite the experience. And then two weeks into her hospital stay, they basically told me that like she, she wasn't eating and she needed heart surgery, but she had to take medication to get the heart surgery. And so because she wasn't eating, she wasn't taking the meds and then she couldn't get the surgery. And if they did the surgery, she would die on the operating table. If she didn't do the surgery, she would die regardless. Do you want to put a feeding tube in her? So I was like, uh, 
would you do that for your mom if she needed if she was in the same situation and the doctor basically said like no it's kind of more suffering and the inevitable won't be prevented either way so i was like all right no feeding tube whatever and yeah i felt every emotion possible while this was happening for you know seven eight weeks um yeah she got moved to hospice and once she was declared end of life i decided to actually speak to her on the phone and it wasn't her she was completely dementia like she was just this broken record just saying this weird story over and over of like oh you your husband and the dog you guys are gonna come over live in my house we're gonna play the piano and we're gonna eat bagels with cream cheese and smoked salmon i was like okay <laughs> cool um and then i actually visited her in the hospital before she got moved to the hospice because i thought that would have been the last time i'd see her and obviously like she looked like she was dying but she could talk a little bit but she wasn't all there um and then they she was still not dying so they had to it was covid so they had to like move her out as soon as possible so they put her in a hospice which was like another two cities away already from where she already was yeah like leave it to a narcissist to make their end of life like drama 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 will <laughs> sorry will have a will she had a will yes yes so that that's another whole thing and so <laughs> It was such a disaster. Like, just I was all over the place emotionally. And there were days where I was like, I should have been a better daughter. I was a horrible daughter to her. And then, of course, I feel those emotions and eventually snap out of it saying, like, I, it was never my job. Like, she brought me here. Um, so, yeah, it was all over the place. And then when she did actually die and I got the phone call and I was visiting every week thinking, like, this is the last time I'm going to see her. And she held on for a very long time, but it was kind of good because I was speaking to a lawyer about the whole legal situation. And that actually ended up buying me time to get like all of the paperwork and stuff like that in order because she she stopped paying for house insurance. And I guess she just forgot because of the dementia. And so I had to get that sorted out before she died because there was a living power of attorney. There was a will. But my uncle was sort of like cooperating because at least now it was like I was taking over and I actually make sense. <laughs> um, so like my mother was totally in the wrong. And I basically told my lawyer straight up, like if if I'm not if I'm going to get in trouble from this case or like lose lose financially on this case or anything like that, I just want to emancipate myself from this whole situation and not deal with it. Let it be the, gov the government's problem. And my my uncle can deal with the government. But it ended up working out. And um yeah, as soon as I got the phone call that she did die, I was like, part of me was like, oh my God, finally. Because <laughs> like she was suffering, you know, like you, as someone with empathy, you don't want to see someone in that state on their deathbed forever and ever. Um, at the same time on her deathbed, she also gave me the death glare. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing. So, you know. What do you mean by the death <laughs> stared you down? You know that look, you know that look they give you where it's like, they're just like, like looking through you as if you're the worst early on early on in uh like doing my research about narcissism i saw somewhere on instagram that they call it like the reptilian glare yes like they're gonna like eat your head and kill you type yes yeah she gave me that glare she had no energy to talk to eat to drink or anything but she had enough energy to give me the glare <laughs> so invalidated yeah so barely even remember you yeah it just invalidated everything about her. So you mentioned, so like you're the one who was taking care of, you know, her final dying days and you had the uncle who was suing her. Did she have anybody else who cared for her or 
did she turn you against other family members? Because I'm sure people on this podcast are going to be listening and being like, oh, well, my narcissistic mother pitted me against my sister, or my brother, or my father, whatever it may be. You know, I know that you mentioned your father and that sort of alienation thing, but did you have any other estrangements between anybody else in your family? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like, she pit me against my uncle, obviously, like, you know, and I don't know my cousins, which is pretty sad, but it is what it is, like, whatever. Um, I really don't know that many of my relatives on my mother's side. Um, there's a few that are, like, in Italy and stuff like that that I've heard horrible stories about that I'm sure is all bullshit at the end of the day. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's funny. So my narcissistic ex um, completely estranged me from my sister, my mother, um, sort of my father, uh, and my mother's entire side of the family. And for anybody listening to this who knows my story, is that after 10 years, I was able to reconnect with my sister, with my, I have, an, I have a few aunts on my mother's side that I absolutely love that I was able to reconnect with. Do you have any advice for people who are struggling to do that? Because when we get out, we're like, I never wanted to give up that relationship. I hear from a lot of people, I had a really good friend and I really fucked that up. You know, do you have any advice for people who are trying to reconnect with the people that were important to him that they lost because of the narcissist? Yeah, I mean, honestly, for that, that is something that is not something I would recommend somebody do immediately. When they find out that they've been dealing with a narcissist, I would encourage you to do some inner work first, right? Because that's going to clarify things and that's going to help you go into the situation should you want to confront somebody that, you know, you stop talking to because of the narcissist and maybe sort of make amends with them. You want to do it from a place where you're, you know, like uh, emotionally stable for lack of a better word. Um, so you definitely want to do some inner work kind of maybe do some journaling about the people that you've lost and just sort of decide if it's worth it to reach out back to them or if it's just worth it to let sleeping dogs lie and not every relationship needs to be resalvaged like my mother put me against my um my godparents as well and you know like for about a solid year I was really thinking like should I reach out to them and you know see if maybe we can just talk about the situation and whatever but then for them it was kind of like you know what no like let sleeping dogs lie because at the end of the day they were also the adults and you know this this isn't something that was my doing so I, I kind of reached the conclusion that it's not on me to like fix these relationships if it's meant to happen in the future great if not that's okay it, it's not the end of the world and you know people ended up reaching out to me too like friends that I stopped having being friends with because of my mother and um but that's probably more so because they found me on instagram um so you know yeah so other people's situations would probably be a lot different um but i ended up rekindling a few friendships that i lost which was really great but i don't know i mean it's really up to you if you want to reach out to those people but i would definitely encourage you to at least sort out some of your emotions first and focus on yourself first rather than you know talking to other people and rekindling those relationships just for the sake of it. I agree with you. And and for the same token too, I've come to find, and it's not only with my experience, but experiences that I've heard from other people, you know, who reach out to me through social media is that a lot of times the person that you are estranged with because of your narcissistically abusive relationship, those people saw through the narcissist 
and they're kind of mad at you that you did it because you turned on them. But a lot of they do have, they understand that we were brainwashed, that we weren't functioning correctly and all those kind of things. And um, like you said, I think, I think it's very subjective, but you have to dig deeper and try and realize like why you want to rekindle that relationship. Exactly. Um, how about smear campaigns? Have you dealt with any smear campaigns, especially like you just mentioned people have found you through social media that knew about your mother. Have you dealt with any smear campaigns because of your social media or otherwise? Not that I know of. <laughs> and, yeah. And regardless, even if they're, I'm sure, like I have so many haters regardless. Maybe some of the haters are some of my narc exes or some of my former narc friends. Um, and if there is a smear campaign, like you said earlier, what other people think of me is none of my business. So whatever, let them talk. Yeah. And hey, if anything, it'll boost the algorithm for my page. <laughs> right. Yeah, now we sound like the narcissist. If you want to fight. Well, screw all the haters. I absolutely love your page. I think your content is absolutely awesome. So I really yeah. you doing this episode with us. At the end of every episode, because we're coming to the end of the hour, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask people, like, what is your final thought as it relates to uh, narcissism? Is it, you know, like, what kind of advice would you give people who are either still in it, trying to remove themselves from it, trying to get over the past, trying to forgive them for their mistakes? Do you have any advice for the people who are going through this sort of thing when they're trying to separate themselves from a narcissistically abusive relationship? Yeah, um, I have so much advice, <laughs> but... I'll keep it short. So basically, like, number one is just don't put the narcissist on a pedestal. They're just a person. Okay? You know? Like, they're just a person. They have positioned themselves to be the expert on your life, and they have positioned yourself to be the authority on your life, but that does not make it the truth. So you have to see it that they're just a person, and, you know, just kind of understanding that anything that they say or do is done with the intention of getting a reaction out of you. And they're not going to tell you this because that would obviously defeat the purpose of manipulating somebody. So you have to read between the lines, just get into observer mode as much as possible and keep your emotions out of it because the narcissist wants you to be in an emotionally reactive state at all times because that makes you easier to control. So the more that you work on your emotions, and I'm not saying repress them, I'm saying journal them out feel them work with somebody if you have to if you can find a therapist that's actually trauma-informed and actually understands narcissism that's an option there's coaches out there who deal with this every day i i know a really good one um you know and there's communities and stuff like that um where you can get the right type of validation and the right type of help with a capital h that us survivors need um, and there's so many amazing free resources online as well. So just, you know, surround yourself with the information, educate yourself and be aware, like staying in that zone of awareness as much as possible is going to be your best bet. And as you start processing your emotions, you will become the human bullshit detector over time, because yeah. the more you understand yourself <laughs> and your emotions, the more you're going to understand how other people are as well and you'll be able to catch it really quick if someone's being deceptive human bullshit detector i feel like i'm really good at that now because like i don't i look for patterns right like if i see something and like somebody rubs me the wrong way i'll take it as an isolated incident but if it's repeatedly becoming a pattern that i'm like nope cut mm -hmm. exactly um so adriana tell us about some of the places that people can follow you on social media or do your coaching sessions or where can everybody take a look at your stuff 
Yeah, totally. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Clapper, YouTube, I think Pinterest too, maybe at Let's Get Your Shift Together. I'm most active on Instagram and TikTok, of course. Um, there's a Facebook page too, but I don't really look at Facebook. And uh, yeah, the link is in my bio on how to work with me. I do one-on-one -on -one sessions. I do um, a community membership as well, which I think is the most amazing thing I've ever created. Two tiers to choose from. You get access to my courses, live events each month, resources, and a whole community of fellow survivors that know what you're going through. And it's you can get started for less than a dollar per day. So the link is in my bio on Instagram, TikTok, or whatever social media. Awesome. Awesome. And I love being a part of your community because I follow everything all the time. So everybody go follow. Let's get your shift together. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Problem.